Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Lorne Johnson, Managing Director and Director of Institutional Solutions at QMA. Lorne, welcome. Thank you, Alex. So let's kick off today with a bit of a background of you and um, yeah. what got you interested in in financial markets, um, particularly um, your current role today. What's been the trajectory to get you to where you are? Yeah, well, that's kind of a long story, but I'll try to keep it short here. It really goes back to my time in graduate school and my PhD program. And I was kicking around a few ideas about how I wanted to pursue my research and where I wanted to go with my career. I was pretty good with data, uh, working with different data sets, macroeconomic data, and it, but it still presented a challenge, particularly if you're going across different regions and so forth, things, are they comparable or not? And when you're trying to do empirical work, uh, can you come to uh, any conclusions from that? And I, I started uh, in one of my econometrics classes working with financial data. And financial data is rich, and deep, high frequency, uh, and it's fairly comparable across different domiciles. So for fleshing out the, the research that I did, which was looking at uh, risk premia in U.S. markets, looking at inflation regimes uh, and how that had impact on financial markets, something I think we might get into a little bit today, uh, as well as some aspects of behavioral finance. Those are all things, just really rich data uh, to sink your teeth into. And that kind of set up my career in finance. And I've been a lot of different places, done different things. I've been a pure researcher, building financial models for making investments. For better part of the last 10 years, I've been in what's uh, considered a multi-asset solutions role. And that's trying to work with prospects to find ways to meet their challenges, meeting their liabilities. And that's taken the form of how to build portfolios that are appropriate for different regimes, uh, as well as how you could add with different active approaches. And there's a big range there. That could be uh, periodic tactical, that could be conditional tactical, depending on what's going on in the market, managing to different risks, uh, as well as, uh, you know, how do you think about the long term? And, uh, you know, many of our clients are you know, long-term investors, DB plans, are our own platform for our insurance products. And that's really a very important first step. How do you build that strategic portfolio? And, you know, having the different experiences that I've had getting to work with a lot of different people and a lot of different types of institutions, it's uh, you know continued to be a fascinating career. So I'm very glad that that uh, shift came when I was in graduate school. I made that pivot and I, I think it was, uh, at least for myself, a very satisfying outcome. So what's changed as you've come out of grad school to today in terms of how you think about the markets? You know, you've come from a very much a, a quant background, it seems like, with this edge of uh, behavioral finance. Do you feel that um, your skills have had to evolve in terms of incorporating much more behavioral factors, sentiment as, as part of being a, a quant uh, specialist? 
Yeah, absolutely. Of course, coming out of grad school, you think you have all these tools at your disposal, these things you've learned, and then you run into the reality. And the market is a very humbling entity. So when one goes in with an idea, even if uh, you have high conviction based on uh, what you've done with your modeling, inevitably, you'll confront a situation that you haven't confronted before, even if you've been working for a long time. So very important to be agile, flexible, and, and that's very much a message that I would give to plant sponsors, asset owners generally, is that the one thing that's certain is that there's going to be a change in environment. And sometimes uh, you have some tools to anticipate that, and, and sometimes you just have to react to it and have the right tools and flexibility to do that. So obviously, since grad school, you've gone through many different market regimes and you and school, you've also got the opportunity to go back through time and, and look at how different market regimes have changed. As you sit today, how do you sort of look at the market today? What is it, is it? Does it look like anything that you've seen historically? Well, I think we could say the regime we're in, even though the last uh, 18 months or so have been quite tumultuous and, and we've seen a, a, a big sell off and a, and a big rally now to, to new highs in the market. It is a, something of a continuation of a similar policy regime. So when people talk about regimes, I think uh, often people think about, okay, we're in a regime of expansion, or it's a risk-on or a risk-off environment. And I would say those are environments that prevail across a lot of what I'll categorize as broader policy regimes. And I think for long-term uh, investors in particular, and thinking about their strategic portfolio, identifying what type of policy regime you're in is very important. So when I say we've been in a similar policy regime as we've been in for, say, approximately the last 20 years, say, since 2000, in the United States in particular, I think it applies uh, broadly globally. This would be a regime where there's a reasonable amount of policy certainty. And that policy certainty comes from the central bank in particular, being transparent, operating under a rules-based framework, and that if there is an event that there's a reasonable amount of predictability about what the central bank is going to do. So if there is uh, what appears to be an economic slowdown, it'd be anticipated the central bank will act by bringing rates down. And if there's uh, some inflation working itself into the system or overheating, there's a reasonable expectation about what the central, central bank will do. In an environment like that, you're going to have much lower volatility, particularly in, in rates, lower interest rates generally, which is something that we've seen a long trend of, of downward rates. And that's an environment that's actually pretty good for both stock and bond investments. And that indeed has been the case for the last 20 years and arguably the last 30 years. You've had very good performance in equity markets alongside very good performance in bond markets and a negative correlation between stocks and bonds. And what that's provided is a nice hedge to investors. So you have, if you, we just start with a very simple 60-40 portfolio, most of the risk in your portfolio is coming from equities, but you do have a decent slice allocated to an asset class, bonds, which provides a hedge in environments where equities may underperform. And if we went even farther than that, if one was uh, to use leverage and try to balance the risk of those in a risk parity type framework, you've done very well because both stocks and bonds have performed well, and they've had this negative correlation where one performs better than the other in environments where the other's not performing well. Now, let me contrast that to a regime where there isn't as much policy certainty, where the central bank is exercising a more discretionary policy. 
And there's uncertainty uh, as to what policymakers will do in, in that environment. Uh, that could also be an environment where the central bank is accommodating fiscal expansion. So if you roll back a bit farther in history, let's go back to the 1970s and 80s. This was a period where you had a lot of rate volatility. You had a negative relationship between rates and economic growth. You had the emergence of the phenomena of stagflation, which was something that was difficult for not just investors to manage, but just making long-term plans, contracting, so forth. So it works as a drag on the economy when there's, there's policy uncertainty. So that, that, to me, is a broader regime to think about. And I think a very interesting question sitting here today is, are, are we on the cusp of perhaps a shift to, to a different regime? And, and following the news here, there's, there's a pretty heated discussion going on right now, uh, just given how strong the economy has come back, how much fiscal stimulus is being directed at the economy with a central bank that, at least for now, is still committing to holding interest rates very low for an extended period of time, letting inflation run hot relative to call it a 2% target. We just saw a breakout in inflation that was mostly from base effects from the COVID uh, crisis and prices falling a lot and now coming back something somewhat more to normal. But is there a trajectory there where inflation expectations start to rise beyond the range that we've been in for a long time? Just in terms of market indicators, the break-even rate, which is indicative of future expectations of inflation, is at its highest level since 2013. Again, that's not going back so far, but it is some time uh, that, that since we've seen that. And, and we've been in a regime of low inflation, low yields for a pretty extended period here. So that's something that's going to continue? Or are we looking at a change in regime? I would say we're perhaps closer to a change in regime than any time since the end of the global financial crisis, at least, and probably going back a little more than that. So those have important implications for CIOs, uh, how they would, would allocate their portfolio, because the outcomes that we saw in an environment of policy uncertainty were quite different than what we've seen over the last 20 years. I'm curious around where does the policy uncertainty come from? Is it the market that drives the policy uncertainty, or is it the, you know, the institutions, the bureaucracy that's driving the policy change? Yeah. So I would say there's a bit of chicken and egg there. The market is generally happy when there is forecastability in what the policymaking authority is going to do. So as I walked through a little bit earlier, if people see in the economic data, either they slow down or a heating up and the Fed is operating under a rules-based framework, so you can think of something like the Taylor rule where you set interest rates as a function of observed inflation and the GDP gap or something like unemployment. And if one can observe those variables, one can have a pretty good idea about uh, what the central bank is going to do. And if one looks at where policy actually has been relative to that rules-based framework, we find over the last 20 years, even though we've had some pretty dramatic events in markets, we had the global financial crisis, the biggest economic slowdown since the Great Depression. We just much more recently had the, the COVID crisis. The central bank, even though if you look at that set rule, was a little bit tight at times. They found other means 
beyond just setting interest rates to be accommodative and supportive. For instance, the balance sheet and buying bonds, those are means by which Fed has has come in to provide the right environment in still what I would call a forecastable rules-based framework. If one rolls back to the regime I alluded to earlier, where there was more of that policy uncertainty, regardless of what was going on, and we had shocks in the 70s, supply shocks, oil shocks uh, in particular, that precipitated recessions. What, what we saw is that in the 70s in particular, the Fed was very loose relative to any kind of rules-based policy. And then when they, there was the shift to Volcker and the essentially killing of runaway inflation expectations, we saw things go the other way in an extreme way where things were very tight, again, away from a rules-based framework. So I do think things were different and those weren't things I, that I believe were driven by markets. And it takes a long time to build that policy credibility. I think it's fair, even with that taming of inflation, it took many years uh, for people to identify the Fed as being uh, transparent and, and predictable. And that created a, a the very low volunt- volatility environment generally that we've been living in for the last 20 years, despite some pretty big events in markets. So that doesn't mean to say that there aren't still excesses in the system that can result in a financial crisis or a recession or an exogenous event like COVID, which can cause a recession, but that the policy authority still being predictable is a different regime in one where they're more discretionary and there isn't as much visibility as to what the policy authority is going to do in a given situation. It's interesting how you describe that, because if I think about this situation today where you've got low volatility, low interest rates, pretty stable policy development, the risk of being wrong is very high because we're at a very, very, very sensitive time with such low interest rates. It would take nothing to make uh, the market get scared, you know, some some unanticipated policy response. There's actually very, it's a very narrow window that people are looking at the Fed to to operate in. You know, does that concern you in terms of when you're trying to set up your portfolio, what ultimately the Fed's doing? It, it really doesn't need to do much before you can have some very wild changes in markets. I, I couldn't agree more. And so that's why looking at what policymakers are saying and doing, and is that something of a shift from what we've kind of been accustomed to that could mark a, a change in regime? And I think that markets will react very quickly if if that comes to develop. I think the first quarter of this year is not a bad example of a maybe it's a microcosm of what could happen if it became extended. We had a move in uh, 10-year rates in the United States better than 80 basis points in the first quarter. We haven't seen that for about five years. We had a move like that at the end of 16 around the, the election when Trump came into office. It was also, incidentally, for U.S. Uh, bond investors investing in the Barclays Ag, which is something of a very common benchmark. It was the worst quarter for investors in that benchmark since 1981. So that that to me is is actually pretty historic. You got to go back uh, 40 years to to have as bad an outcome there. So people who are looking for uh, bonds to be this very stable hedge it could change very quickly. And if inflation expectations continue to rise at the pace that they have been, and it's really just been you know, over the last several months, we went from a, a very short-term deflationary environment, which is typical uh, in a recession, and, and now we're, we're at a point just 
looking back one year from, from the trough that in inflation expectations are at a eight-year high, and uh, it wouldn't take much for those to become unanchored, I think. So far, I, I would say our base case at, at QMA is that we would still expect something of a continuation of the policy regime that we've been in until we see more evidence that we're breaking out of that. Evidence that we're breaking out of that could be inflation expectations continue to rise, the Fed remains accommodative, and those expectations move to a different level than we've experienced for the past, I'll say the last 20 years again, where they've been quite stable. And we see oscillations in actual inflation, but inflation expectations have, have been quite tame. So how does that then change the way you look at your portfolio? Because if you're thinking about diversification and we're at this point where it doesn't take much to have significant changes across the market, the traditional risk parity approach is probably not going to work for you. Um, it's, it's a real challenge there for investors. So I'm curious around what does the building blocks of a portfolio that is a diversified portfolio then look like today? A couple of things there. So one, correlation is very important for diversification. So ideally, if you have assets with positive expected returns over a reasonable horizon, low correlation or even negative correlation, you're going to get a nice diversification gain in your compound returns. Now, the relationships between assets we've seen over time can change. I mentioned a negative stock bond correlation prevailing over the last 20 years and positive stock bond correlation prevailing in that regime of policy uncertainty. Were we to return to a regime where we see rates and economic growth no longer be positively correlated, which is essentially a regime where you have positive stock bond correlation, you no longer have the hedge you had from bonds. So where do you go? Well, not to be too general about it, in that environment, what we often see more than anything else is rate volatility, that, that uncertainty, uh, and also higher rates. Those are both things that are challenging for bond investors. They don't give you the diversification. In an inflationary environment, and when we go back in time, particularly to the 1980s through the mid-90s, we found assets like commodities and gold having a negative correlation to equities. Now, on the risk parity question, I think it's a very interesting one. Investors have found a way to use leverage in a relatively safe way and also add value in, in terms of that diversification and, and increased return uh, with higher sharp ratio with that negative stock bond correlation. Obviously, that blows up if the correlation goes positive. Now, there are, I think, better ways to use leverage that don't run into the same risks. For instance, a portable alpha overlay would be an approach where you have strategies that take no net direction in asset classes that could sit on top of a strategic allocation. So a modified strategic allocation, one that de-emphasizes bonds as the only hedge to equities, and then having exposure that's uncorrelated to underlying asset classes that can provide excess return. Assuming, of course, you have skill in your your active manager. But uh, suffice it, there are, there are a number out there who have shown the ability to add value pretty consistently over time. That would be a way to use leverage that would not run into the risk of what you have in a risk parity portfolio where the correlation breaks down and, and suddenly you're very exposed. And when there's a market downturn, you lose money in both assets. So- is it fair to say that this alpha part of the portfolio is looking maybe more so at relative value? 
that that would be the portable alpha overlay, right? So you would have relative value strategies, perhaps in a number of asset classes, equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, and those are managed to uh, extract alpha from both risk premia as well as sentiment. So th- th- those are two fairly uncorrelated sources of alpha. And in a similar way that you think about an asset like credit, which pays a premium in the carry over time until it doesn't, right? So you can think of that there's a set of risk premium strategies exploiting things like carry, like valuation. And then you have the sentiment, which is going to be faster moving, which will help you uh, in market transitions that you can pick up, but there's a, you know, a, a quick change happening in the market, your fundamental variables that you would be using like interest rates to determine uh, your risk premium strategies, those won't change as quickly as, as market sentiment. So alpha coming from those two different sources uh, and, and again, in a relative value way, it's uncorrelated with the underlying asset class risk. I'm curious because you mentioned many times about sort of the the challenge of correlation and uh, versus different regimes. Do you mm-hmm. feel that the market regimes are are shrinking in their time periods? You know, are we are we seeing regimes changing quite quickly? Are we seeing correlations changing quicker than maybe they used to? So again, there I think there's a long term regime and a short term. So in the shorter term, what will we'll typically see in in periods of crisis. So certainly periods at the end of the business cycle or when there's an exogenous shock, risk asset correlations generally go towards one. And that's something that I think CIOs need to think about in building portfolios. And a lot of the traditional methods for building portfolios will miss that, in that if you do uh, what is very standard mean variance framework, you're essentially looking at averages, you might find that there are risky assets that appear to be diversifying, lowly correlated to one another. And that is true for most of the time. But then when it's important and you need diversification, that's when those those correlations go to one. So one of the things that we do at QMA in the building of strategic portfolios is to look beyond that framework and think about other sources of risk, in particular, drawdown risk. So as opposed to looking at the covariance matrix and what those sort of average outcomes are, to specifically focus on periods of shortfall and what is the profile of assets in that that environment and inform the portfolio that you're building with that information. So there are different methods depending on your sensitivity. If you are a very long horizon investor and occasional drawdown is not something of uh, particular concern and you can go through that, that may inform a more traditional approach. But if in fact you do have liabilities, cash flows that are going out or cash calls perhaps from private assets you may be holding, which will come looking for additional funds in an environment like that. Thinking about that downside and those downside scenarios is is very important in the portfolio construction. One of the things that a lot of managers or, or even CIOs look for, I should say, is they think about correlations. They think about the top line financial returns. But underlying these fun- financial returns is the fundamental analysis of these businesses, the cash flows that come through, whether it's stocks, whether it's bonds. You know, how do you potentially take into consideration the underlying values? Like, is, is that what you're looking at when you're thinking about drawdown risks? So when we build our capital market assumptions, and this is the primary input into building a strategic portfolio, it's really the starting point. What is our expected return over a 10-year horizon? and the risk that goes along with it, and the correlation that, that goes along with that. So a very important building block there is valuation, in fact. So 
We build our forecasts, three basic components, anticipated growth and inflation, income and valuation. So right now, our view looking forward, as well as U.S. stocks have done on a relative basis, it is the most expensive market in the world. Now, on a tactical basis, you may want to ride that with momentum. On a 10-year horizon, U.S. stocks are looking very expensive. And without fail over time, rich markets eventually revert to the mean. And it could be an aggregate. Global markets are on a relative basis, unless there are things that will put a natural differential between the outcomes you could expect in different countries. And that includes interest rates, that includes policy, but other things being equal, valuation is very important at the asset class level, as well as at the regional level. So that's a very important component. In terms of those other components, growth, in our view, and it's not anything that we came up with, again, over the last, it's a little longer than that, over the last 30 years, growth in developed markets has slowed. And they're very understandable reasons for that. The major input in an economic growth equation would be your labor input. And uh, labor growth in developed markets has come down dramatically over the last 30 years. And in some uh, major economies, it's negative. So Japan, parts of Western Europe, where we still see the best opportunity from that aspect in developed markets would be someplace like Australia or Canada, where you still have fairly liberal immigration policy and a reasonable amount of labor input growth. So those are important building blocks uh, that we update every quarter in our process. So that, along with these different methods for building portfolios and being flexible, gives us a lot of levers to adjust allocation. Strategic allocation isn't something you want to adjust too frequently, then it becomes tactical. But if there are important shifts... For instance, over the last year and a half, when we've had the major events that we've had, those do have important implications for our our forward look. For instance, the uh, outlook that we would have for equities got better when we had the the big sell-off because the valuations were more attractive. They're less attractive now with the markets recovering as much as they have. Same with fixed income markets. We've never seen as low expected returns for fixed income, primarily driven by the underlying income component the starting yield. And just in a quarter, our forecast for a number of fixed income instruments has actually doubled just on the income component. They're still relatively low because the inputs that we're working with are quite low. But it can be quite dynamic, uh, even at that longer horizon, if you have major moves in the markets. I wonder, do you see any blurring of asset classes? You've talked quite a few times there about income and fixed income and credit. You know, the traditional fixed income doesn't really offer a lot of income there. Private credit, I guess, is another place that many of the CIOs are moving mm-hmm. to. But then we are seeing a number of equities that are almost trading like bonds in terms of the dividend stream, and it's pretty pretty stable. You know, do you see a potential blurring of, of the uh, the asset classes there? There's definitely overlap between asset classes in terms of what you're investing in. If I, again, think about what are you investing in long-term, what are you exposing yourself to? So probably the best asset class to expose yourself to general economic growth is is equities. That's tied to, to earnings. Even though in equities, yes, there's an income component as well. And it can be less or more attractive depending on the regime you're in. And present yields are low across asset classes dividend yields are low, fixed income yields are low. So you want to think about the drivers of the different asset class, the economic drivers in particular, and what's the outlook for those those drivers. So 
if I'm a fixed income investor, yes, the income is very important, but then I also need to think about the view on rates going forward. If I'm going to invest now and I think rates are going to move much higher from here, that's obviously going to influence my expectation for the, the asset class. And similarly, credit is a hybrid, right? And sometimes, depending on the environment that you're in, most of your return could be coming from your underlying exposure to rates. So call it the sovereign rates. Uh, and at other times, it's going to be driven by its equity-like characteristics. And and usually in, you know, credit is kind of a, a free pass most of the time until something goes wrong and then it becomes very correlated with equity. So I agree with you. There, there's overlap in the different asset classes. And one way you pick that up, okay, what are the, the correlations look like and how are they indifferent? And I'll, I'll move away from the broad regimes that I've talked about in terms of policy and just think about periods of calm and stress and fleshing out, you know, what does this asset class look like in a period of calm? And what does it look like in a period of stress and just being cognizant of that? And I think uh, to your question, clearly in, an, in a stress environment, assets that may seem complementary to equities in particular may have a lot of equity risk and just being uh, cognizant of that and, and being able to flesh out. And one of the things that we do for portfolio construction is also forward simulations using our expected returns. And, and in those forward simulations, we will look at different regimes, whether you're in a regime of calm or a regime of panic, and what are the expected returns in each of those regimes, and what kind of drawdowns might you see in, in those stress periods. And they're quite a bit more than you would find if you modeled in a multivariate normal framework, where you just expect everything is bell-shaped and you have just as much upside is downside symmetrically. But we know, looking at risky assets in particular, they're negatively skewed, they have fat tails. And what that means is that when there is a risk event, they sell off very quickly and very aggressively, and then they gradually come back. So are you positioned for something like that? Or is that something that you want to avoid? And that that's something that's important in the construction of portfolios and how we look at things. I'm curious around you know, how discerning you are within the asset classes, because you've mentioned quite, quite a few times around equities being overvalued and the, the, the loss of, of benefits yeah. from correlation. Do you then need to say, dig deeper? Like you can talk to equities being overvalued in the US, for example, but as you go through sectors and go through individual unique names, you can maybe find some other benefits from, from being a little bit more discerning in the underlying securities that you pick. Is that something that you need to then do in this type of regime? Absolutely. So, I mentioned equities being rich, US being rich in particular. European stocks are actually quite attractive on a valuation standpoint. So in terms of our expected returns there, we would expect to do better there. In terms of other ways to be discerning, we're also big believers in active management. So a couple avenues. One, one is picking an active manager that does security selection, who will have the skill to make those sector plays, be it in fixed income or be it in, in equities. The other, something that I mentioned, another source of alpha is absolute return and how you could layer that on as a diversifying source of return that doesn't have the inherent correlation risks of investing in a specific asset class, correlation to the, the broad asset classes that most people are familiar with, equities, bonds, commodities. Well, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Lon. It's been a pleasure, Alex. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us. 
All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.